Glory to Jesus Christ, glory forever. Welcome back, everybody, to our study of the Ladder of Divine Ascent by St. John Climacus. And we are picking up with a new step this evening, step number 13 on page 132 on despondency. And I remember when reading about this for the first time, uh, hold on for one, we have a little question on translation. Asidia, would this be closer to uh, insouciant or melancholy rather than despondency? No, acedia would be very much like despondency. And I think that's what they're describing here. And uh, John would, I think among the fathers gives us perhaps the clearest definition of it, how it manifests itself in our life, but also what we do to overcome it. And so this is actually one of the best things that we could be reading uh, for this particular struggle, which is one of the most difficult in the spiritual life, the kind of spiritual darkness that overcomes us. And the evil one can use it in such ways where uh, and he will use anything to draw us away from the relationship with God, uh, including like creating a kind of spiritual depression where we doubt our faith in God, we doubt the value of our prayer life, or simply by drawing us into uh, work, you know, where we shift our focus on to our daily labors in a kind of an unnatural way, and in a way that makes us then uh, be less attentive to our relationship with God in the life of prayer. And uh, so this can be a very difficult uh, vice to overcome. And it's only really through perseverance uh, in the spiritual disciplines that we can sort of make our way through it until we emerge out the other side. And uh, so understanding what John is saying here uh, and some of the remedies that he puts forward is essential, I would say, for the spiritual life. As we have already frequently said, this we uh, said, this we mean despondency is very often one of the branches of talkativeness and its first child. And so we have given it its appropriate place in the chain of vices. So talkativeness can lead to a kind of dissipation in the spiritual life and subtly draws away from being attentive to God, to focus upon what we're talking about, what others are talking about, the daily gossip or the daily news, in such a way where we lose, lose sight of God altogether. And I think I was mentioning before I uh, addressed the comment that uh, it was really, I, I heard about this only the first time when I read John Klein, because I wasn't familiar with it. I think uh, many more people know about it now, and there have been quite a few books published on it, even, which is a good thing. I think uh, people are much more familiar with it. Uh, I don't know if that makes us any more disciplined in dealing with it, but it's good at least that uh, we're aware of it and what it does in the spiritual life. Despondency is a paralysis of soul, an innervation of the mind, neglect of asceticism, hatred of a vow made. It calls those who are in the world blessed. It accuses God of being merciless and without love for men. It is being languid in singing psalms, weak in prayer, like iron in service, resolute in manual labor, reliable in obedience. 
And so it's an interesting definition, isn't it? And an interesting mix of, uh, of things that uh, he draws our attention to, to define it. And some we would expect, I think, an innervation of the mind. You know, the mind becomes sort of dull and inattentive, neglect of asceticism. So st stepping away from our spiritual disciplines, hatred of vows made. So one can uh, develop sort of a, a dark view of one's commitments and regret them because of what they've meant to them. And so see them only in this negative light or dark light. It calls those who are in the world blessed. And so for a monk who's left the world and left the comforts of the world or the blessings of the world, uh, marriage being one of them and companionship, so often living in solitude and isolation, it begins to uh, see all the good things that that reality, those rea that reality holds within it and uh, makes them more and more the things of that reality more and more attractive to the minds and the hearts of the monks. So they begin to daydream about having uh, never left the world or leaving the monastery and going back to the world in order to know uh, the, the fullness of that life. It accuses God of being merciless and without love for men. And so uh, when, you know, often when we become depressed on an emotional level, uh, our view of others uh, is darkened as well. And so we begin to see others and the things of our life through this darkened lens. And everybody becomes disagreeable to us or those who have supported us, we see as unkind or neglecting us in some way or another. And similarly, this kind of despondency can make us view God as not really caring for us, not really loving us, that if he did, then he wouldn't allow us to experience the, the struggles that we are uh, in the spiritual life. And so God becomes not the one who's the consoler, the one who gives us strength, but just the opposite. And so one begins to accuse God. It is being languid in singing the Psalms and weak in prayer. And so one becomes undisciplined in the, the reciting of the Psalms, not engaging in it with one's heart fully, or not being attentive to the words that are being said or careful about the words that are said, so that we would be praying the Psalms in an attentive way, not quickly speeding through them or uh, mispronouncing the words and just uh, not paying attention to trying to do it well and, and with love. Uh, and then also weak in prayer. And th this is where it shifts though, like iron in service, resolute in manual labor and reliable in obedience. So all of a sudden, uh, the person wants to be engaged in physical labor beyond what is needed for the day uh, in order to provide for themselves or to provide for the monastery. And so they will jump uh, to run, say, if the abbot asks them to do something, because it becomes for them a distraction on that day. So it's not really obedience that is leading them. Uh, to respond to the abbot, but rather this spirit of despondency that just wants to get away from the silence and, or from the prayer itself, uh, to have a distraction in one's life, even if it is work. 
And so being attentive to these subtle little movements in our hearts can be very important. I think we're often more likely to pick up some of the early things here or see them and can sort of train ourselves to see them. But the, the latter ones in the definition, I think, are much more challenging because we the way that we find our identity so often in work or, or just the nature of it so often it presses upon us. We see it as a necessity. And so the idea of getting ahead, of working a longer day uh, than necessary, isn't nece we aren't going to necessarily pick that up as tied perhaps to the spirit of despondency. We might pick it up as being uh, disciplined in our work and committed uh, when in reality we're trying to escape the interior, the interior life. Any comments about his definition? Okay. Paragraph number three. A man in obedience does not know despondency, having achieved spiritual things by means of sensory things. And so one who's truly obedient. And we go if we go back again to our definition, ab adore, to listen. Uh, one who is truly obedient is going to pick up, is going to hear the things that come to us from God, either spoken through the abbot or spoken through the reality, uh, realities around us to see the presence of God in our interactions with others in the particular events in the, in the monastery or for us in the world, uh, certain things that take place in our day-to-day -day life that might seem to be inconveniences. A person who has this obedient spirit is going to uh, look first or uh, at look for the presence of God in these events or listen uh, to what what is being said to us or communicated through them. Uh, and sometimes that, again, that can be a very subtle thing too, that perhaps God is telling us to slow down. And so uh, our capacity to engage in, in our work or to get all the things that we would want to get done in a given day is disrupted that uh, certain inconveniences come into our life. Somebody wants to talk to us and, uh, or somebody comes with a particular need and it pulls us out of our schedule and we are called then to act with charity or we're, we're slowed down by, again, circumstances where there's nothing left for us to do but pray. Uh, I was coming home, I had a meeting at the seminary today and uh, it, it figures it lets out right when Pittsburgh's rush hour hits and I get not even halfway home and I'm stuck in traffic and immediately road rage starts to stir up in me and I'm thinking I'm going to be late. I have to get back to the church for liturgy and I was hoping to you know, just have a little time to rest and think about even how to do the liturgy since I'm learning uh, you know, for the first time with some of these things. And someone texted me, well, you know, put on, you know, you'll, you'll get there. The traffic will start moving, put on some music. And I put on, there's a sung version of the Jesus prayer. I don't know if uh, you've, you've heard it before and it's quite beautiful. 
And so I put that on and allowed myself just to listen to that and follow as, as well as follow the directions of Siri to take me through all these back neighborhoods to get home. And then just was able to relax and calm down. And uh, uh, so, you know, that moment of being caught in traffic, you know, I think we can, you know, be pulled out of where we need to be, uh, become frustrated, enraged with other drivers, or upset that we had to go to this meeting that ran, you know, why would they start a meeting at 1.15 and talk so slow that then you're, you're driving home in rush hour, you know, you have all these thoughts come to mind, or, or maybe they'll, maybe I'll just stop going to those meetings, and they'll get rid of me and put somebody else in my place. And so all these thoughts come to mind. And, but if we can stop at that one point, and fortunately, I had somebody text and say, you know, just slow things down in your mind, listen, you know, and my go to music is usually Russian choral music or something like that, or this Jesus prayer. And it worked. I mean, it was enough to draw me back to a peaceful place so that when I got home, I had, you know, I got home and there was a kind of uh, a joyfulness. You know, I saw my dog and was able to get ready and had plenty of time uh, uh, to do it. And my dog was tired out. So it wasn't like he was acting like a maniac. So it was like this little extra blessing that God gave me to prepare for the liturgy. And so I think it's these subtle little things in our day-to-day -day life where we can get caught up in this darker spirit that can pull us away from this mindfulness of God or the remembrance of God and focus too much on being on time or what's an obstacle to us, or, or simply the feeling of you know, frustration or anger at terrible drivers. And uh, it's a perfect moment, I think, for the evil one to sort of stir that up. And then he could make that, if we did not stop that, make it linger into the evening and maybe even follow us into liturgy. And then, you know, uh, and then draw us into greater darkness because here I went through liturgy without being mindful. You know, it could have gone that way too. And so you can see uh, how John is setting things up for us here. It's not just the obvious things that can darken our hearts. Community life is opposed to despondency, but she is a constant companion of the hermit. She will never leave him till his death and wrestles with him daily till his end. Seeing an anchorite cell, she smiles and creeps up and camps nearby. So you can see why this would be given such attention by the Desert Fathers, in particular those who either at one point in their life lived in solitude or for all of their life that despondency in particular uh, will attack those who live uh, in, in solitude because if they are drawn into it and there is this great fall into darkness and there's no one to pick them up, no one to help draw them out of it, then they can 
stay immersed in it or they can give up on the life altogether. Whereas John says here, community life is opposed to it because you're forced to live and move among the members of the community and others who are going to see how you're responding or not responding to the typical flow of the day-to-day -day life or how you're engaging in prayer and will talk to you about it. You'll be compelled to bring it into the light. Whereas a hermit, may it may uh, pounce on him and he, he may be stuck in it for a long period of time until uh, she has her way with him in the sense of drawing him out of the life altogether. And John will talk a little bit about what that looks like coming up, but uh, it, it does make sense when we're alone and we fall into if just into a dark mood. Uh, you know, we, we can even get into this point where we don't want to leave it. it it's like, it hurts so good. I'm miserable and I'm going to be miserable, and I'm going to spend the day miserable, and, you know, it's, it's a hard, it doesn't make it any easier to deal with, but there can be a part of us that, for, you know, where that becomes a familiar uh, presence for us, and so I'm not I'm not talking about depression or clinical depression here, but this spirit of despondency that often will attack us. Uh, they often can play on each other, but they are distinct. And uh, there's a personal element to the ones that the, the fathers speak of. And John makes a point of saying that, you know, she camps outside of the, the anchorite cell. Uh, but, you know, we can become very familiar with that presence and even accepting of it. And so I think John wants us to see very clearly that we, we have to fight against it. There is this kind of asceticism of joy or simply just our asceticism as a whole that we have to hold on to to help pull us toward God and out of this darkness. Anthony writes, well, there's a couple here. I'm sorry. Uh, Daniel wrote, despondency is a child of talkativeness, but community life is opposed to it. That seems sort of contradictory. Yes, because, you know, living in community, you know, it can be, a, you know, if you're immersed in chattiness all the time or the kind of jesting and humor that John has often talked about. Yes, that's true. One can become dissipated through that. Uh, but the kind of common life that I think he's speaking about is simply being around others that are engaged in that same discipline and that they sort of model with us and we are drawn along with them to this common prayer. We might not want to go, but because the, the, everybody else is going when the bell rings for prayer, we will go along despite how we are feeling. And so there are a lot of things in the common life like that that will pull us out of this, out of ourselves and out of this battle. And then Anthony wrote, the spirit of despondency also perverts a concept of what it means to be elect. I am the only true one. Everyone is against me. That's not a good place to be. Right. <laughs> That's true, though. 
I, you know, no, just kidding. Uh, that's true. I think we do get into that spirit that uh, that others are set upon us. And so when we get into that negative place, then again, we're seeing everything through that lens. And so even when people are trying to help us, we can see them as adversarial and uh, contradictory, you know, as you mentioned here that they're, uh, you know, putting something contrary to how we're feeling. And nobody likes to be told, smile or, or be happy. You know, you want to club them over, over the head when they do that. But, uh, and so you, you're right, you know, we can have that. And so un, I think understanding despondency also gives us an insight then to how we would help others through it. And the answer to that is not just telling them to be happy. You know, I think it is to support them on this deeper level of through our prayer, knowing again, our solidarity with each other, uh, but encouraging them to go to prayer or helping them, you know, doing some act of kindness where we support them in uh, daily labor. And that can go a long way, I think, in, a, in making a person feel that their, their life and their efforts are worth it. And somebody acknowledges that in, in some fashion or another. And Daniel writes, as, as a follow-up, it seems that despondency is always a lurking threat. Okay, that clears up. Thank you. Yes, it, it is always a lurking threat. And I think that's part of what makes it so dangerous and what it made, made it so dangerous for the anchorites in particular, that the moment that a person embraces the life of solitude, that's where these demons are going to focus their attention, knowing that there's a vulnerability there. And it's as if it's harder in community, you, you might not see it quite as much, but it's not as though it's absent there. I think it's pretty present and lurking everywhere, but especially in solitude. The doctor visits the sick in the morning, but despondency visits ascetics by noon, uh, about noonday. And so the doctor will pay a sick call in the morning to see you know, where, where a person is, how they've come through the night, if there's been any improvement. Whereas the noonday demon will approach uh, at that midday where you know, one has been up for a long period of time, spent a lot of time in praying. They're deep into the fast as well. And so vulnerable. They're being humbled in mind and body through the prayer and through their spiritual disciplines. But when that midday comes with its heat and fatigue, perhaps uh, they find themselves fighting against it. That's where the, this, this demon in particular will, it's the time that this demon will strike. Despondency is a pretext for hospitality. She insists that by means of manual labor, alms could be given. And she urges us eagerly to visit the sick, recalling him who said, I was sick and you visited me. She puts into our heads to go out visiting the dejected and faint-hearted and sets one faint heart to comfort another. So it's, <laughs> I love how he writes, uh, sends one faint heart to comfort another. So for a monk, again, 
stay in your cell and your cell will teach you everything. And so the sol their solitude is meant to foster this unceasing remembrance of God, unceasing prayer. And so the temptation for them is going to be hospitality. You know, oh, come on in. Well, you know, we'll just have a little bite to eat, you know, or they'll be glad when somebody comes to visit to ask a question or need something. Let's sit down and have a little conversation and I'll you know, make you some tea or give you a piece of bread here that I have. Or we'll think of like visiting the sick. So specific commands within, even within the scriptures, they will hear them in a particular sense. Uh, not that those commands are untrue, but for one who's responding to the particular call to solitude, that it could be a way of drawing them out of that commitment and uh, to elevate the importance of that in their mind. And that can be a really a very seductive temptation you know, that there's a person in need that I heard was sick and uh, not even a question comes into one's mind that, you know, that there are others that could take care of them, but I have to leave my solitude in order to go tend to them. Or the last little phrase, which I like the best, we, we hear of somebody who is dejected and faint-hearted and, you know, like often is drawn to like and uh, so one who's faint-hearted will want to go spend time or, you know, give company to another person who's going through the same thing. They can commiserate, as it were. And, uh, and so, again, that can be a powerful pull as well. And you can see why that would even be seen as a virtue. Well, uh, I see what they're going through. And so, of course... What God wants me to do is to enter into that with them, to share what I'm going through and to talk with them, and maybe it'll help pull us both out of it. Now, it's a, uh, a subtle little temptation here. There's a couple of uh, comments here. Uh, Cindy Moran, Noonday Devil from Psalm 96, very good. And also, Sister Barbara, also many monks would not eat before 3 p.m. That's right. So beginning around midday, hunger and hungers may start. That's right. That's, you know, a person would begin to daydream about what they're going to have for dinner around that period of time and to start think about, thinking about what's on the menu. And, uh, and that's even true of monks. You know, it's not like they had a lot around uh, to eat, but they could start daydreaming about the evening meal. And John talks about that at other places. You know, the one who is uh, uh, a warrior, a spiritual warrior will, you know, long for the times of prayer or for the bell that calls them to chapel. But the, the one who has fallen into something like this or is neglectful will love when they hear the dinner bell ring. All of a sudden they have all the energy in the world you know, prior to that, they're falling asleep, they're drifting off during their prayer. And as soon as the dinner bell rings, they're up and running and filled with, with energy. And, uh, and so that's often a good little sign, you know, naturally, because of our physical weaknesses uh, and limitations as human beings, we will experience fatigue and sometimes we will drop off in our prayer. 
And so I wouldn't, I don't want anybody, I wouldn't want anybody ever to become anxious about this. It happens. And, but if we find it happening consistently, sometimes we need to ask ourselves why and what might be going on there. You know, is it a pattern in my life that's leading to too great a fatigue or is it something along these lines where I get into prayer, I have this motivation to enter deeply into prayer and then I get in there and a couple minutes after I'm in there, I'm drifting off. And uh, it can be the effects of this particular demon on us to draw us into a kind of slumber to allow us to get too comfortable in our place of prayer. Like nobody can pray from an, a lazy boy chair. <laughs> I'm sorry if I'm insulting anybody who just loves to pray in their chair, but uh, it's always a dangerous place to pray because it's so comfortable. And if you put your feet up, forget it, you're lost. Uh, because then the next thing you're, you're, it's morning and you're waking up for the day. Uh, so it's not as though we should be uncomfortable, but we see the lengths to which the monks went to keep themselves awake. And we'll hear John talk about this, that uh, this, this, this spirit will first, you know, tell a person, you know, to lean up against the wall, you know, to hold them up, you know, and then to sit down while they're praying. And the next thing, you know, they're falling, asleep, falling asleep. And so instead of standing where on a physical level, they are compelled to remain attentive to to stand like a servant in waiting for the master uh, and, and involving one's whole body in that prayer. If we allow ourselves to become so comfortable, we lose that. And and naturally, once we get very comfortable, we can fall fall asleep. Daniel. So I just have a question. I'm trying to understand this one. So like, how does one properly discern then? So like, how did, how did the desert monks properly discern then when they really were supposed to give way to charity and help someone versus when it's like despondency trying to pull them towards something that like, maybe they're just, they're looking for a way out from the daily life, I guess. Maybe I answered my own question, but, you know. Well, partly through experience, but I think, uh, again, this is why they emphasize the importance of a spiritual elder, uh, the one who has experiential knowledge of this, who struggled with it himself and was guided by another who had, had struggled with it for years. And so often we, we learn, and for them, the desert was like a kind of laboratory. And so they could see the subtle movements of the mind and the heart, but also the demons. And so through experience, they would begin to pick that up. And the purer the heart becomes, the greater the power of discernment. And so they could see the subtle movements around them and within them, and know if they are coming from God or coming from some other spirit in their life, a spirit of laziness or the spirit of evil. But most important would be the, having uh, someone that you could share that with, confessor, spiritual elder, that this, I find myself struggling with this. And uh, 
you know, once I think one has experienced it a number of times, uh, you can you begin to real you can begin to realize that some of these monks would find themselves m make a physical movement to begin walking out to do something or to to leave where the cells were and walking towards the town and suddenly come to this realization. Wait a second, what am I doing? You know, I'm leaving. I'm, I'm being disobedient to my elder, but I'm leaving the place that I've been called to do battle. And so I'm making myself vulnerable. But sometimes it's actually finding themselves in the grip of that demon and fighting against it and then returning back to what they need to do. And uh, with this one, as we've often talked about, it's only through... Uh, coming through the other side that uh, we see it fully and the subtlety of it. So we struggle and we might go through a long period of spiritual dryness and darkness and find, feel like we're afflicted, have no desire for prayer whatsoever, or these thoughts that sort of plague us that God doesn't love us, you know, or I can't see what he's, you know, why he would want this for me or to have me doing this. And that might go on for weeks or months. And, uh, and coming out the other side of that, one can experience a greater abundance of consolation will flow to them from God, having endured that desolation, uh, the cross of that so long. And part of the grace then is this greater capacity to see the subtleties of the working of this spirit. And so being strong in the battle and enduring these things, and this is why we hear in the scripture, make sure your endurance carries you all the way to the end, uh, because that's exactly what's needed with this particular vice. We have to hold on in endurance doing battle, even when we don't feel like it. And when we feel as though we're being overcome, you know, how could God love me or how, why would he accept my prayers where I don't even want to do them or, you know, it's, I'm forcing myself or they're filled with distraction, you know, and yet we keep, we keep doing them or keep calling on him simply with a Jesus prayer or a shortened version of that. And again, that might go on for a long period of time. And it's hard, I think, in our day and age, too, because we, we like uh, quick satisfaction or we, we want to see quick results in the spiritual life. And so we become easy fodder, as it were, for these demons, uh, you know, that to, to be discouraged. You know, when we aren't experiencing the heights of contemplation or we don't overcome lustful thoughts, you know, in a couple of weeks, and, you know, or we're not able to, you know, remain faithful to our prayer role for more than a couple of days, then, you know, we can get discouraged and think, oh, okay, you know, this isn't worth it. You know, we, we want uh, that, that quick kind of satisfaction, but spiritual life and uh, the fruit of our spiritual disciplines often only manifest themselves after years of struggling with them. We might begin to see the initial fruits of them, like a person who's been praying the Jesus prayer deeply and consistently for a couple of months may begin to experience some of the real fruit of that, an intimacy with God, greater peace, clarity, 
but some of the deeper fruits that arise from this constancy of prayer, the purity of heart, the capacity for discernment might only develop over the course of years and great fidelity to all these practices. But spiritual counsel, I think, is probably the strongest. Okay. Uh, number seven. She reminds those standing at prayer of necessary duties. And brutish as she is, she leaves no stone unturned to find some plausible pretext to drag us from prayer as with a kind of halter. And so, you know, that there always is something that we could be doing. And it's especially at the time of prayer, that those things will be put before us. Because we'll often tell ourselves in our mind, once I finish this, I'm going to sit down and pray. And uh, we'll, but when that moment comes, another thing will come into our mind. Oh, yes, I have to do that. And then the next thing you know, the whole day is gone. And so one thing after another can come to mind. This is why giving, uh, why having a specific role and specific hours that we commit ourselves so that we don't leave it to our personal choice, that we commit ourselves to a particular hour or hours of prayer, say in the morning. And we go there regardless of whether or not we feel well rested or are feeling healthy or feel like praying, we go and we continue to go. And what this does is it makes us let go of a kind of willfulness, uh, private judgment, but also basing our prayer life on how we feel emotionally, you know, whether we're in a good mood or we're inspired. We're, we're doing it out of love for God, faith in his promises, hope in his promises. And so we turn to him seeking this intimacy. But even more than that, because of our, our identity in Christ, what we've become, and through our baptisms, we are temples of God. The Holy Spirit dwells within us. And so we're not even to just engage in prayer. We are to become prayer. We are a prayer to become prayer incarnate. So the whole purpose of our life, our being, is this internal liturgy that is taking place. What we celebrate on Sunday in the church is actually taking place at every moment within our hearts. When, we're, when we are crying out the Jesus prayer, there's this movement between the self and God, but that is also strengthened by the very spirit of God that dwells within us. And so we don't need to go around the world searching for identity and purpose. When in reality, we are told you're, you're temples of God, the most high, the Holy Spirit dwells within you, your ultimate goal in life, or your immediate goal is purity of heart, your ultimate goal is deification, you know, to live in this love eternally, and to and take hold of the gift that God has offered us with the deepest gratitude. And we often don't have that clarity about our, our dignity and our identity. So, so much of what we do, we're questioning the value of it, or it's based upon how we're feeling rather than what we've been told and what's been revealed to us about what we've become in Christ. 
when we receive holy, the Holy Eucharist, we're, we're no, no longer merely human, you know, in the sense of our capacity to love and to give ourselves in love and our strength, our virtue uh, that we are capable of is that of Christ himself. And, you know, how, what else do we, we mean? Think of when we hear Christ say, you must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect and merciful as your heavenly father is perfect, other than telling us that this is the will of God, that you not only know forgiveness of sin, but you enter into the fullness of that perfect love. And my embrace of your humanity, but also of redeeming it and raising it up at the ascension into the very life of God as the first fruits that this is the reality that you are called to participate in. Uh, we're members of the body of Christ. And sometimes we think about that more of like, we're members of a club, or, you know, we're, and we're members of this body that embrace the same teachings and beliefs, but we, we don't understand it in terms of uh, there being one body and we're, you radically united together in the spirit of love and uh and we are participating now in life of the trinity and if this guides and directs all of our thoughts and actions then we're going to live a much different life how easily we become distracted from the the, the greatest of things and or minimize them and see them as small prayer receiving the holy eucharist you know, th this should be the most striking things a kind of uh energy should be experienced or excitement urgency come over our, our hearts when we are about to receive holy communion or when we were to take up prayer cardinal newman was once asked what he thought heaven would be like and he said it would be like eucharistic adoration <laughs> and i think for most people their jaw drops and they think oh my gosh that's going to be terribly boring but for a person in faith who has entered into that it's bliss you know it's this experience of intimacy and communion with with the lord and when that becomes something that's out at the fringes of our mind and an abstraction, when it becomes an abstraction, then, you know, why would I want to go to heaven? You know, is there going to be football there? You know, kind of things like stupid things like that, you know, where you think it will, we think it will be uninteresting. Okay. Uh, the third hour. The demon of despondency produces shivering, headache, and even colic. At the ninth hour, the sick man gathers his strength, and when the table is laid, he jumps out of bed. But the hour of prayer has come. Again, the body is weighed down, and he had begun to pray, but it steeps him in sleep and snatches the verse from his mouth with untimely yawns. And so, you know, the, this demon is relentless. And so right from the beginning of the day, it begins to work upon them. They feel sick, headachey, 
you know, colicky has, we would cough, you know, and so just everything that would pull us away uh, from prayer. And so you regain to strength after a few hours of this. And then when the table is, we've already talked about this, when the table's laid for the meal of the day, all of a sudden he regains his strength. But when it comes to returning back to prayer, again, he's overcome and then begins to yawn while he's saying the, the Psalms. Okay. Each of the other passions is destroyed by some particular virtue, but despondency for the monk is a general death. This is a powerful statement that, uh, you know, we can find remedies in the writings of the fathers and in their experience to particular vices that we might be struggling with. Uh, lust, we may focus then on gluttony and fasting and deepening our prayer and avoiding near occasions of sin and so forth and so on and so forth. But then, but with despondency, uh, there's nothing for us to hold on to or do other than persevere in what is before us to continue on regardless of how we are feeling again endurance uh i've mentioned here i can't remember who it was if it was churchill if you find yourself going through hell keep going until until you come out the the other side don't stop don't quit and uh, this is the, the basic remedy for, for us, if you will, that we have to keep fighting on and not allow ourselves to, to give up to the spirit of darkness that often plagues us. And so he describes it as a general death. So a monk might be living that life and doing all the, you know, these things, but be, have it wrapped so much in this shroud of darkness that it isn't bearing fruit for him. A courageous soul resurrects his dying mind, but despondency and sloth squander all his riches. So even a person who has throughout the course of years engaged in the spiritual life courageously and has led a very disciplined life and grown in virtue, the, the spirit of sloth, so laziness or negligence in the spiritual life, and the spirit of despondency can steal the riches of that from them. So all that has been gained through the, the, the years of ascetic effort can be tossed away and lost when the spirit of darkness overcomes an individual. It can make them give up altogether on it, see no value in it, and even come to despise it, as we've heard, and so uh, leave off of it all altogether. And so this is why John can describe it as a kind of general death. You know, it brings an end to the spiritual life for that individual. More person coming in here. Since despondency is one of the eight capital vices and moreover the gravest, let us deal with it just as we have dealt with the others, 
But let us only add this. When there is no solidity, then despondency does not make its appearance. As soon as the appointed service is finished, the eyes open. So it's a curious statement where there is no psalmody, this despondency does not make its appearance. So when a person is not engaged in this discipline of actively engaging their mind uh, and allowing the prayers of the Psalms to carry them forward. And I think in some ways, the Jesus prayer does this for us as well that it can carry us like those men carrying the paralytic on the stretcher to Jesus, that it becomes so rooted in the heart that it carries us forward. And, uh, and so whether it's with the Jesus prayer or the psalmody, if we stay engaged in it, then despondency does not approach. It's when we let off of this, where we uh, let go of that discipline that we are subtly drawn in into this uh, more and more fully and then discover you know that we we have not been really praying at all spiritual heroes come to light at the time of despondency for nothing procures so many crowns for a monk as the battle with despondency Passed away for upcoming concert that never Oops, somebody broke in there. Did you hear that? A little bit of interference there. Okay, so if you'll see there, uh, the heroes, the word violent is uh, often used or sometimes translated that. Uh, so the spiritually violent. And uh, I gave a talk at a parish last night where Paul Evdekimov, a, a great uh, uh, Eastern priest and theologian, spiritual writer, talks about this arising out of a kind of what he calls uh, eschatological maximalism, that we understand that we live in the end times, that with the, with the coming of Christ, with the advent of Christ, the end times have begun. God has revealed himself to us completely. And so there is to be a kind of urgency uh, with which we live our spiritual life, but also that we keep ourselves in the moment. If we live in the past and ruminate on the past, or if we're daydreaming about the future or anxious about it, or we push off the, the, the end times to the second coming of Christ, the appearance of Christ, then we cease living in that moment. And uh, there is this kind of holy violence that the scriptures speak of and uh, the fathers speak of that we must be willing to do to ourselves and engage in. Uh, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence and the violent bear it away. Uh, that if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. If your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out that those who understand that they live in that moment, they, they live in this end times and that the moment is what matters. What we take out of this world is only our vice or our virtue. And you know, so living in the past, living in the future does not help us in this moment fight the good fight of faith. 
And so we have to live now and we have to do whatever it takes to hold on to virtue, to hold on what, to what is precious and to struggle against what uh, leads us into vice. And there are times where we are going to have to make a choice to cut things out of our life that are even benign on their surface, but that weaken our resolve in our pursuit of virtue or pursuit of Christ. And so plucking out of eye <clears throat> isn't necessarily, or it isn't speaking literally of mutilating ourselves, but it does mean preventing ourselves from uh, with a kind of curiosity or gate or allowing ourselves to gaze upon things that will pull our, our minds towards the material world rather than allowing grace uh, to be the necessary thing for us that pulls us along. And uh, we allow the material world to take center stage. And so if Dekimov and the saints say, no, you know, if you're, if you understand that you're, we're in the end times and that it's the moment where Christ is found, then you're going to live that moment fully with a kind of urgency, a kind of clarity about what you have to be attentive to. So that has to be, shape the fabric of your day-to-day -day life, that I live for Christ and he dwells within me and it is his love and his grace that permeates everything about my life and what I do. And so I have to have an eye for him. I have to be seeking him for every moment because at every moment he is gazing upon me. And, uh, and so this is what John is saying here, spiritual heroes, those who are, are willing to engage in this kind of holy violence come to light in the time of despondency. So they, when it shows itself, they will fight with an even greater ferocity in the sense of holding on to their prayer life. And when they feel that rise within them of not wanting to do it, or they have a thought of giving off, they, they will you know, immediately put down that thought, strike it down like they're cutting off the head of a serpent in order that they might hold fast to their prayer. And uh, again, I think we've lo lost a sense of this, uh, again, of spiritual battle. We're willing to fight for so many different things in this world and to sacrifice so many different things to uh, pursue our, our particular goals. But when it comes to the spiritual life, we often lack this kind of courage. <clears throat> we'll see football players run down the field and fling their bodies through the air all to make a tackle. Some of them break their necks and never walk again. And you think, you know what in the world, you know, money is the big thing, obviously for the pros, but you know, what kind of view of glory do you have that you're willing to make that kind of sacrifice. And yet within this spiritual life, the moment that we feel a kind of dis-ease, uh, you know, a discomfort internally, you know, we can turn cowardly and, and give up immediately. It often doesn't take very much to pull us away from prayer or even you know, go, going to mass or divine liturgy. 
observe and you will find that if you stand on your feet, despondency will battle with you. If you sit, it will suggest that it is better for you to lean back and it urges you to lean against the wall of the cell. Then it persuades you to peep out the window by producing noises and footsteps. Again, I love his little images. So you can see how little things like that for a monk, you know, they've left everything in the world. And so they're living in this cell in this deep prayer. And then they think they hear somebody walking by and, you know, they jump to their feet and they want to peep out the window. Who is it? You know, maybe I can engage them and distract myself for a period of time. Even if it's not a reality, this demon of despondency can make us think that we hear, hear something or something that uh, needs our attention rather than what it's placed upon at the moment. He who mourns over himself does not know despondency. So a person who understands and sees with a great clarity the beauty of the life that God has called us to, what he's made possible for us, but also the destructiveness and the darkness of sin is going to be drawn into the compunction that we've talked about. This you know, clarity uh, about the choices that we make that even leads to tears that cleanse the heart and draws us back to God. So a person who has fostered this virtue through uh, this constant examination of, of the heart and, and the remembrance of death is going to not be aff afflicted by despondency, that they're going to have this as kind of a, a guardian, if you will, or a shield around them uh, to prevent its approach. Because compunction is, you know, it has within it this tur turning and movement toward God. It's not just the acknowledgement uh, of, of the regret over one's sin, but in the acknowledgement, there's this movement toward God uh, to seek his forgiveness, his mercy, and the, and the grace and the healing that we need. And so, in essence, it makes despondency impossible to attack us at that point. Let this tyrant be bound by the remembrance of your sins. Let us buffet him by manual labor. Let him be dragged forth by the thought of blessings to come. And when brought as before a tribunal, let him be duly questioned. Tell me, you nerveless, shuffling fellow who viciously spawned you, who are your offspring? Who are your foes? Who is your destroyer? Wait a second here. Wasn't he speaking of despondency as she? What, what led to the shift to he here? I think that must be a problem in translation here. I'm going to have to check that out a little bit. <clears throat> For some reason, he switches his reference here. So this is a, a common thing that we see in John's writing that when we find ourselves afflicted, uh, not to become passive, but to be active in the sense of scrutinizing, even as he does here, you know, who spawned you? Who are your offspring? Spring? Who is your destroyer? 
you know, to, to question. And so this is a kind, we engage in a kind of interrogation. Again, the, the language is that of spiritual warfare, of, of battle. And so a person who's struggling with despondency, again, has to become even more fierce in that regard and fierce in this kind of questioning. And despondency under compulsion may be thought to reply, among those who are truly obedient, I have not where to lay my head, but with those amongst whom I have a place for myself, I live quietly. So interesting, you know, to the individual who isn't vigilant and isn't obedient, who clings to self-judgment, self-will, this demon can live quietly there, present, having its effect upon the soul, but maybe not making itself manifest so clearly that the individual does battle, because on some level it finds a welcome home, and there's no need to do that, and it's better not uh, to manifest itself so clearly as to the warrior. And... Uh, and so it uh, finds a place for itself. I have many mothers, sometimes insensibility of soul, sometimes forgetfulness of the things above, sometimes excessive labors. So we become insensitive to the things that are of value, of spiritual value and importance to us. Uh, our conscience has become dulled sometimes forgetfulness of the things above. So we, again, we lose sight of God. We lose sight again of this uh, fact that we live in the end times. Uh, and then excessive labors that we've talked about that simply immersing ourselves in work uh, to the extreme pulls us away from God. My offspring who abide with me are changing from place to place disobedience to one's spiritual father, forgetfulness of the judgment, and sometimes breach of the vow. So a kind of external instability. So one becomes fed up and discouraged, you know, with the hut that you're living in or with the people around you. And so you throw up your arms and you say, okay, I've had enough. I'm going to go set up and find a cave somewhere else, more secluded. And, but it creates this kind of instability. Whereas if you stay in that place, you're engaged in a continual battle that allows you to go deeper and deeper. Whereas if you're constantly moving from place to place, and the monks really spoke disparagingly about these kind of monks, I think they were called gyrovakes, who would move around from place to place and visit monastery after monastery. So there were neither Cenobites or Anchorites, but there were these kind of monks that just moved, went from place to place, relied upon the hospitality of a monastery, uh, but they were looked upon in a negative light precisely because of their lack of the things that are necessary for the spiritual battle. A disobedience to the spiritual father, uh, forgetfulness of the judgment, and then breach of a vow. So the, the breaking of a vow ultimately would be one of the children of despondency. That it would leave, lead one to break one's greater commitments. 
my opponents by whom I am now bound are psalmody and manual labor. My enemy is the thought of death. Prayer with firm hope for future blessings is my utter death. And who gave birth to prayer? Ask her. So an interesting ending here, but you know, the thought of death, of course, in remembrance of the brevity of our life, future blessings, but prayer with a firm hope is utter death. So when we are turning to he who is life and love, that's where consolation and strength comes to us. When we do not hold on to the illusion of being able to muscle our way through this particular vice or to overcome it, that we cling to God with even greater uh, tenacity in the spiritual life, understanding that it's only by his grace that we overcome this. And this is what John says is the utter death of despondency. We, you know, because it's the opposite of disobedience to one's elder or to private judgment. Who gave birth to prayer? Ask her. So it's an interesting little phrase. Does anybody have another translation here that they're following? Does it say the same thing? Okay. So ask her, you know, ask, ask prayer itself, you know, ask uh, who, who, where she comes from, what the origin of, of this great gift is, and she will tell you. And so, you know, we are to look at prayer as the greatest of all things. And again, also, its strength is found in the fact, again, that we are temples of the Holy Spirit, that it is the Spirit of God who calls out with, again, groans beyond words from the depths of our hearts. And uh, this is where our, our true victory comes from. This is the 13th victory. He who has really gained it has become experienced in all good. Uh, a great little ending, you know, that one who has persevered through this battle, uh, it is like going through hell. And so you learn a lot, I think, when you go through experiences like this, uh, most especially confidence in God and the reliance upon God. You are shown so many aspects of how evil works and how temptation works by dealing with this one. And so if you stay in the fight and you persevere through it, then you've gained uh, all good, John says. The spiritual battle ahead uh, is you're going to have the weapons uh, necessary for all the spiritual battle battles ahead. I missed a comment here. Uh, Ambrose wrote gender equality, very modern. <laughs> okay, maybe, I don't know. I'm gonna have to search, research that one. It seems like despondency and gluttony as well have a tendency or propensity to draw us toward numbing, 
which paired with the nature of our culture, which attempts to provide numbing or comfort in all things, seems like an almost double whammy of sorts. Right, you know, because I, you know, I think food for the fathers was always something that would weigh one down, especially if it was heavy or rich, or if we ate in abundance, that uh, all the blood runs to the stomach and one becomes very sleepy. And, uh, and so one is no longer experiencing, again, that humbling of the body, uh, but the, the body itself, you know, having reached satiety, uh, no longer thinks of God, does not have that natural hunger and desire within it. And so it can easily lose that hunger and desire for God that is behind it. And so this is why, again, fasting should be a constant part of our spiritual life, as well as avoiding the things that numb our minds and our hearts. And so this is where the idea of, you know, if your hand causes you sin, pluck, cut it off, eye causes you sin, pluck it out. There are things in this world that might numb our hearts, our consciences to that which is greater. And for the one who is a spiritual warrior, the response to that is going to be clear. I have to set this out of my life, cut it out of my life, because that which God holds out to me is of greater value. Any final comments or questions? Very powerful step. Certainly one worth going back over and over again. Daniel. You have to take yourself off mute. This is this is ultimately a question, but it's kind of like a comment first, right? Is that you know, I guess if I were the the um, demon of despondency today, I may I may I may look at it as I have many mothers, and it's you know like the internet and social media and television and constant entertainment and the American work ethic, you know, like kind of reading through that list. And I, I guess the question is, well, no, and then I would make everything dependent upon it, right? Everything kind of like is dependent on those things right. these days. So the question is, it's kind of hard, I guess. I don't know. I'm not sure how to ask the question, but the question is, it's kind of, Maybe that's maybe that's why he says that this is like the most the most pervasive of the eight vices or most whatever he said the worst of them is because it's it's hard to escape its clutches I guess is how it feels I I don't I don't know maybe there isn't a question in there it's just more of an observation I'm not sure well it undermines the spiritual life and uh, a kind of clarity that we have but also our understanding of our identity. And the group I was leading at that parish last night, we've been discussing interiorized monasticism, uh, according to F. Dekimov. And one of the elements that he talks about, says there's five elements to this. The first is prayer, and not only prayer is a discipline, but becoming prayer, uh, becoming prayer incarnate, if you will. And then this... Uh, uh, eschatological maximalism that we talked a little bit about here tonight. So understanding that we live in the end times, but then he takes us through 
what are the, the three evangelical councils that have been sort of codified in, in our time and often li limited in our thinking to religious who make them rather than evangelical councils that which come to us from the gospel, but more particularly Christ. And so what he does is he takes us through the temptations of Christ in the desert to show us Christ engaging in this battle and these primary virtues that are supposed to be part and parcel of our life, that we are to interiorize poverty, chastity, obedience. And so we're interiorizing monasticism, not by embracing the monastic life, but by adapting the wisdom that gives rise to and forms these virtues within us. And with poverty, uh, we see Christ, you know, fasting for 40 days in the desert, tempted, you know, change the stones into bread, you know, cast off the, the emptiness uh, that the uh, that humanity and its poverty brings to you. Uh, use your power and uh, and fill yourself. And so Christ says, you know, one does not live by bread alone. And so he sort of overturns also there uh, what we hear because of the fall that you will, by the sweat of your brow, earn your keep. You know, now by what we become in Christ, we are told not to focus on the material and pursue this by the sweat of our brow, where it becomes the focus of all of our attention and energy, that what is comes into ascendancy is the grace of God. This is what sustains us at every moment. This is what brings us to eternal life, and that we are also nourished upon he who is the bread of life. And so our use of material goods, and even how we pursue them now, is to be shaped by this new identity in Christ that we have. And with despondency, I think it keeps pulling us back to uh, what life is before Christ, uh, to this, you know, again, earning things by the sweat of our brow, being anxious about providing for our own needs, you know, rather than, than living in Christ and being able to trust in his providence and grace and what he sustains us with and allowing ourselves through the discernment then that comes to us to be able to use material goods in such a way that they, there's a kind of balance there, that we use them to provide for ourselves and for others, that we no longer see ourselves in isolation and cannot see ourselves in isolation from other human beings. So all that we have and all that we possess and uh, that we share with others, and not simply out of our abundance, but in accord with the, the need of the, the others, of the other. And if you remember, the great image from the gospel is the elderly woman who comes into the temple and she throws in her two final copper coins for the upkeep of the temple. And Christ jumps to his feet and says, there, that, that's the love of the kingdom. Everybody else is coming in and giving out of their 
abundance, you know, the extra money that they have. Here she comes in, she gives her last two coins, what would sustain her. Well, if we understand ourselves as the, the temple of God, then we are going to throw everything in. Uh, and, and because we know that God has already thrown everything in. And so we have no concern about finding ourselves in want. This is our, our part of our great fear as human beings, that God will abandon us, that we won't have enough to support ourselves. And so we fight desperately to create the sense of security for ourselves, even if it's an, an illusion. You know, we hear the story in the gospel about the guy who has such an abundance. He says, what am I going to do? I, you know, I have so much, you know, from farming. And he says, I know what I'll do. I'll tear down all my barns and big, build bigger ones. And then he's told, you fool, this day you're going to die. And so all of his efforts are focused on the material and protecting for himself this abundance where it's all an illusion. And so grace and our life in Christ and our, our being temples of the Holy Spirit should allow for this ascendancy of grace to uh, grow within us and in our mindset and allow material goods simply to be what they are given us for, but given to us for love, you know, to certainly support ourselves and others, but also who are dear to us, but also those around us who are in need, to love, to give ourselves in love. And so it's contrary, you know, to a worldly spirit. And as Christians, we're as infected by that as anybody else, especially if we live in the West. You know, we're in the top 99 or you know, top 1%, you know, in terms of what we have accessible to us in comparison to, you know, the rest of the world. I saw another hand go, go up here. Uh, Angela. Oh, I'm sorry. I, I, I'm very confused. I came in um, on time and then I heard you say, and finally, and I'm thinking, the time zones have changed. They you... did, yes. Oh, okay. Um, we have uh, daylight savings, that right. terrible thing that they've imposed upon us. Okay, that... so um, what is your time now so I can work it out? Our, for our time here is it's 8.50. Okay, here. okay. So I've, um, yes, we haven't changed. So uh, thank yeah. you. Yeah. I'm so, I'm so sorry. We, we forget sorry. about that every year. <laughs> uh, Thank you. Yeah, even Art said got me too, because I, <laughs> I think in Arizona, they don't do daylight savings there. Indiana doesn't do it either, I don't think. And so there, there might be quite a few here tonight. They got a bit confused. Indiana. It's even worse. It's parts of Indiana. Parts of Indiana, that's right. <laughs> so... Well, I didn't realize we were running so late. I'm sorry about that. But good questions, comments as always. And again, this is a powerful step. So good one. If you have thoughts that come up over the week, you know, certainly we didn't get to touch upon everything. So don't be hesitant to bring them up or send an email. I think we have to create a little forum 
maybe as part of our website uh, for questions. I think when people send me emails or private messages through social media, it's just too hard for me. Uh, but if the website and Philokalia Ministries itself had a place that could receive those, then systematically we could go through those or address them in greater measure, or even have special groups like we've been doing recently dedicated to a particular subject that's that come up in questions a lot. So I'll talk to Ren about that since she's the creator of the website, and we'll see if there's something that we can uh, think about here that we could do. Okay. So when we close as always with the Our Father, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. The Lord be with you. May Almighty God bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Go in peace.